I wonder, is it true perhaps that as Christians, we can look back on our Christian heritage um, with a slight sense of, of jealousy, you know? A slight sense of envy. Do you see what I mean by that? You know, could it be true that as we look back on, on what London used to be like, let's say a couple of hundred years ago, do we look back with, with envy? You know, when we, when we consider that, 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 that it was expected that the average person would really know their Bibles in this city. And when we think about that, when we consider that the churches used to be just bursting at the seams, imagine that, you know. People almost queuing to get into church, expected that people would come into a church service. Is there, as we look back on that, think about that, a slight sense of envy? A slight sense of maybe, just maybe a bit of jealousy? Now, I don't know, I think it would be kind of understandable if that were the case. Because this city that we live in today has changed so much in such a short space of time, hasn't it? I mean, spiritually speaking, London is almost unrecognizable from, from the way that it used to be. Like, this week, I was reading a report, and it was a report about biblical knowledge. And it was suggesting, it's quite a staggering figure, it was suggesting that fewer than 1 in 20 people in this city would have any idea, even about the very basic details of Scripture. You know, stuff like what the Ten Commandments are, and that sort of thing. You know, we're dealing with a situation where fewer than 1 in 20 people have got any idea about that. Do you see it? Whether we like it or not, we inhabit, we live in an ungodly place. So we live in a biblically illiterate place. We live in a place that knows very little, if anything, about the God of the Bible. I'll tell you this. Because of that... This portion of scripture that we're looking at today could not be any more real and any more relevant to our lives. I'll tell you why. Now think about this. Let me ask you this. Do you remember, as Paul and Barnabas have been touring about uh, sort of Asia Minor and they've been, they've been preaching and spreading the good news of the Bible, let me ask you this. Do you remember what the first thing they do as they go into a new city? Do you remember what that is? We've seen it. We saw it last week. We saw it the week before. We saw it the week before that. What's the first thing that they do when they go into a new town? They preach the good news. They go into the synagogue. Now, look at your Bibles. What is noticeable by its absence in Lystra? Paul and Barnabas do not go into the synagogue. Right? Now, here's the thing. Why do they not go into the synagogue in Lystra? If they've done it everywhere else, why do they not go in? Because there was no synagogue Do you see it? There was no community of the people of Israel in Lystra. There was no sort of community of the people of God. Do you know why? Because the people of Lystra were pagans. Do you see it? What we're dealing with here in Acts chapter 14 is the first time that this good news of the gospel goes out into a city like London. A city that knew hardly anything of the God of the Bible. So I'll tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to consider what Paul and Barnabas did in this place amongst ungodly pagans, and we're going to think about what we can learn from that, about how we should be living in London, how we should be living for Christ in an ungodly city. Okay, so you know the drill, don't you? If you haven't already, 
please pick up your Bibles and, and have it open at Acts 14, because we're going to have to pay really quite a close attention to, to God's Word, to His text. So have the Bible open. And we'll look at a number of headings. This is our first heading. This is our, our first point. In a city like London, we should believe that God can work. Okay, you got it? In a city like London, we should believe that God can work. Okay. Right. Last time out, if you were here last Sunday morning, um, you'll remember that Paul and Barnabas were unceremoniously kicked out of Lystra. Okay, that there was this uh, attempt to stone them to death and they leave. Now, usually what happens when Paul and Barnabas leave a city because of persecution, is that they travel quite a long distance before they settle in the next place. That's not the case here. Now, we've got to think that Lystra is just about maybe 18 to 20 miles south of Iconium. Okay? Now, although we've said that Paul does not go into the synagogue in Lystra, that doesn't mean that this guy here is not still preaching. Even in a pagan context, that's what Paul's doing. Verse 7 makes it explicitly clear. If you can see that, verse 7 makes it clear that Paul's preaching. Okay, now, if we're going to try and imagine a picture what that is like, Paul preaching in Lystra, if he's not in a synagogue, I think we've got to try and imagine this guy preaching outside. In fact, more than that, we're trying to imagine what this would be like. Paul preaching in the listener. We've got to imagine Paul preaching at the city gate. Now, I know some of you are thinking, ah, the, this preacher is stretching it a wee bit. How does, how does he know that Paul's preaching at the city gate? Well, what do we know? What have we seen before in Acts? In the ancient world, the city gate was where the infirm or the disabled would gather and congregate. We know that, don't we? And what does Scripture tell us here? Scripture tells us here that not only is Paul in a pagan context preaching the word of God, but he has also healed a crippled man. That's how this this portion of Scripture begins, doesn't it? Now, here's a question for you. Okay, here's a test for you. If you are a regular member of the congregation. See this healing of a crippled guy in verse 8 to 10. Can you read that? When I read that earlier on, is that ringing any bells for you? Do you think about what we've seen over the last couple of months? Is that the healing of a crippled man? Is it, is it, is it a bit familiar to you? I'll tell you what, it should be. Pick up your Bibles, please, and, and just flick over to Acts chapter 3. Just for a moment, just the beginning of Acts chapter 3. Have a look what's in Acts chapter 3, and then come back to, to Acts 14. So Acts 3, have a look. What have we got in Acts chapter 3? Do you see it? What have we got? We've got Peter healing a crippled beggar in Jerusalem. And that's a similar account, isn't it? Now, flick back to Acts 14. Now, that's an, a similar account. In fact, do you know what? I'm going to go a wee bit further than that. I'm going to say that that account, Peter healing a crippled beggar, Paul healing a crippled beggar, those accounts are almost identical. Aren't they? they? Think about it. Peter at the beginning of his ministry, Paul at the beginning of his ministry, they do the same thing. They heal, they heal someone. They both heal a lame man. They both heal 
a lame man who has been lame from birth, so not through illness or accident, they both, now this is an unusual detail, think about this. They both, to heal the guy, they both look intently at the man to heal him. And then, get this, both men who are healed respond in exactly the same way. They stand up and then they jump to their feet and rejoice. Now, do you see it? These things are really very, very similar. Now, I wonder, with this, are you following me? Do you see the point in Acts chapter 14? The point is that God can work as easily and effectively in Lystra amongst pagans as he can do in Jerusalem. In the holy city, amongst all these people that are so supposedly religious. Do you see it? Our God is so powerful that he can work amongst pagans as he can amongst the religious. And I wonder, do you see what that means for us this morning in the city of London? See, I suggest this. I suggest that one of the greatest hurdles to the gospel in this city is the lack of faith within the church. One of the greatest hurdles of the gospel in this city is actually a lack of faith, a lack of belief in here. See, I think if, if, if you're honest, if I'm honest, we maybe doubt that God has sufficient power to change such a secular city. Don't we think that? You know, that this city is just so pagan, man. I mean, this place is just so ungodly. Can God really change it? You know, we think it's maybe more likely that God is going to save people who are a bit more religious, you know? Don't we think that God's maybe more likely to save another part of this country that's a bit more sort of familiar with Christianity than he is to save that atheist guy that you met with? Or that agnostic person that you're friends with? Do we think like that? Can I say it this morning? That is not how it works. Do you see this morning that your God, our God is infinite in power. See, he can save just a drop of a hat. He can save anyone regardless of their previous exposure to, to Christian culture. Think about the miracle here. What is God doing? God heals a man who is disabled from birth. How does he do it? How does he do it? He heals a man after that man hears the word. He heals the man... Because the man responds to that word in faith. And I want to tell you this morning, and I want you to hear it and hear it well, God can do just that. And he can do it in London. And he can do it today. He can heal. He can. He can heal spiritually the most ungodly, pagan, atheist. God can heal him. God can heal that person from their lifelong spiritual malady of sin. God can furnish anyone with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those people, you know, we think about them and think, can God really save that person? God can do it in Christ. God can do it. And that person will stand to their feet and they can rejoice in Jesus Christ. Friends, do you see the point here? Biblical illiteracy. A lack of of Christian culture. These things are no obstacle to the, to the power and to the grace and the might of our God. They're nothing to Him. 
Perhaps today we should be praying that this morning, as the gospel goes out in here, as the gospel goes out across London, we should be praying that God does this, that God acts to spiritually heal. So in a city like London, we should, as Christians, believe that God can work. Okay, second heading. In a city like London, we should expect initial misunderstandings. So in a city like London, we should expect sort of initial misunderstandings. What do I mean? Okay. We get it, don't we? We get the sort of beginning of this uh, episode in Lystra. We get that Paul has healed this man, this crippled man. But then what happens next is is really remarkable, isn't it? If If we think about how the crowd in Lister respond to the miracle, it's just, it's, it's very weird, isn't it? I mean, it's a very, very strange response that this miracle gets. Like, I'm guessing most of us have seen Star Wars, okay? I'm not talking about these new Star Wars, I'm talking about the proper Star Wars, you know, the old Star Wars. I'm pretty sure that most of us have sat through, you know, like Return of the Jedi, okay? And so because of that, we all know that bit in the, in the film, where the goodies, if you like, they first encounter and are captured by the Ewoks. You remember the sort of nice little furry, furry little guys, you know? Well, don't, don't start out nice because they can't, remember they bind Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and they sort of tie them upside down and they're about to put them on the fire. And then all of a sudden the wee Ewoks get a glimpse of C-3PO and R2-D2, don't they? And they think, oh, these, these, these robots, they think, the Ewoks think they're gods. And they start to sort of venerate and they start to worship R2-D2 and C-3PO, right? You've seen that, surely. You should have seen it. Well, isn't that exactly what happens in Lystra here? Isn't it? Because no sooner as Paul, he's healed this man, no sooner has he done that, than both he and Barnabas are suddenly treated as if they are gods. And you see, Barnabas is supposed to be Zeus, the chief god, and, and, and Paul is supposed to be Hermes, the, 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 the messenger god. And, and the crowd goes, goes crazy, doesn't it? And they sort of get oxen and cattle, and they're, they're ready to slaughter them in the name of Paul. Now, that's lunacy. It's crazy, isn't it? It's such a bizarre reaction that we've got to ask, Why? Like, it's instantaneous, isn't it? Like, they, just all of a sudden, they go from seeing this crippled man to worshipping Paul and Barnabas. It's bizarre. So what's going on here? Well, you've seen Star Wars, but I'm sure everyone's also familiar with uh, the Grimm fairy tales. Yeah? You've heard of the Brothers Grimm. In the sort of 19th century in Germany, these guys write a whole host of sort of folk tales and folk stories and what is it snow white and hansel and gretel and all that sort of stuff right now they write them in the 19th century and then instantly we would say i guess they went viral these sort of fairy stories everyone in germany knew these stories everyone read them and they knew everything about it now there's an academic theory today that suggests that these stories, these folk tales, heavily influenced 
the national consciousness of Germany in the 19th century. That, like, everyone knew them. Everyone knew these stories. And so themes from these stories, like romantic notions of nationalism, they sort of permeated from these folk stories into the psyche of the German people, right? And at this point, you're probably thinking that your minister's lost the plot. And, and what's he talking about this for? It doesn't make any sense. But what we've got to realize is that that is exactly what sits in the background in Lystra. You see, what we know is about, and I get this, think about the dates here, about 50 years before Paul and Barnabas got to Lystra, this poet wrote down and documented a folk belief, a sort of folk tale that all the people of Lystra and all the people in the surrounding area adhere to and have a guess at what the folk belief, the folk tale was. They believed that gods came down to earth and dwelt among the people of Lystra. They believed that the gods were angry because the people of Lystra did not respond to these gods with sufficient enthusiasm so the gods punished them. Now, when you consider that folk belief, when that folk tale that all these people believed, do you begin to see why it is that they respond to Paul and Barnabas in such a strange way? They saw the miracle. They saw this healed, crippled guy, and they thought, the gods are back! The gods are back! We better react enthusiastically. We better worship these guys. Now, that's fine. Do you see and recognize the underlying problem with it all? The population's paganism was clouding their understanding of the gospel. Do you see it? These folk beliefs, these folk tales were impinging upon their acceptance of what Paul and Barnabas were saying about Jesus Christ. Now are you thinking what I'm thinking? Is that not exactly what we are up against in London in the 21st century? Like people are holding this city, you know, amongst your friends and the people we know, people are holding all sorts of crazy folk ideas and beliefs and philosophies about life and salvation and, 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 and creation, all manner of superstitions. Now think about it, to, to those exposed to superstitious belief, we take them the gospel and maybe initially... The simplicity of the gospel is going to be difficult for them to, to grasp, isn't it? They're exposed to superstitious belief. You know, to those who are exposed to works-based religion, think about how many millions of people in London are exposed to works-based religion. We take them the gospel initially, perhaps. You know, the, the very availability of salvation through faith is going to be an initial stumbling block. Yeah. Maybe to those who hate the idea of religion at all. And aren't there millions of people like that in our city? Maybe to them, the very existence of Jesus Christ is going to be a stumbling block to them. But what does that mean for us? Surely it means that we have got to be prepared to persevere in our witness to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? You see, I want to say this to you, and I really want you to hear it and think about it. Like, I started the sermon here talking about the sort of glories of what London used to be like. I'm pretty sure it did, you know? You know, think about Spurgeon and the Met Tab, all these thousands of people 
thousands of people praying for the service, you know? I mean, it would have been pretty good. Great Christian heritage. God did not choose our Christian forefathers for this battle with secularism. He chose you. He didn't. We look back on all these great men. God selected you, me, for this battle with a secular world. He has chosen us. He has selected us. He has saved us in his grace. He has commissioned us. He has called us. And he has set us in this time frame to go out into this city with his word. What are we going to do about that? Really? Let's go. I mean, let's go and live in such a way, in such a place, that even if there are initial misunderstandings and misgivings about the gospel, that through the Holy Spirit, people might come to properly understand and receive and accept the wonder of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Okay, now, um, in the past... I have said a number of times that, uh, and you've heard other preachers say it, I'm sure, that we should never water down the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, I've said this before. Um, I've said it in the past. This is the point, Tim, where everyone thinks that you're, you're rejecting to something I'm saying, but Tim's going up to the organ. <laughs> so It's not so bad. Uh, but I've, I've said a number of times in the past that we should never water down the gospel in our witness, that we should never try and dilute the gospel. So perhaps just to be deliberately provocative, perhaps just to be a little bit wicked, this is our third heading, okay? In a city like London, we should be willing to adapt our message. Controversial, maybe? In a city like London, we should... Be willing to adapt our message. So you have to follow me closely on this. Okay, now, what have we seen? We've seen that Paul and Barnabas are worshipped, or almost worshipped as gods. Now, what we've got to think about is how these guys, imagine the predicament they're in. The city is trying to worship them as gods. How do they respond to that? How does that, how do they deal with that? Well, I don't know if you caught it when I read it, but there's a delay here in the text. Like, the city is speaking in the Lycaonian dialect at this point. So there's a slight delay in the penny dropping for Paul and Barnabas about the fact that they are being worshipped. But see, when they do work out that is what is going on, they freak out, don't they? I mean, this idea that they would be worshipped rather than Jesus Christ, I mean, it's repulsive. Do you see what they do? They rip their clothes in disgust. And they run into the crowd to try and stop them from doing this. Now, that's fine. That's what they do. I don't want us to focus on that. I want us to think about what it is that they say at this point. Okay? Because please, please hear this. See these words in Acts 14 that Paul says. They are radically different to anything that we've encountered so far in the book of Acts. Like, think about it. We've seen a lot of, a lot of sermons, um, and a lot of preaching and acts so far from the likes of Peter and Paul. This, what we've got here, is totally different. 
See, think about it. Who was it that Peter and Paul were preaching to so far in the book of Acts? Who did they preach to? Preach primarily to Jews, don't they? In a synagogue. And when Peter and Paul are doing that, what do they do? How do they present the gospel to these people? They basically say, in the first part of Acts, they basically say, this is Jesus. And he is the fulfillment of your Old Testament scriptures. Isn't that how they present the gospel? This Jesus is the realization of all the types and all the figures in in the Old Testament. Now, my question to you is, how would that go if you were to do that tomorrow in London? Let's say you went into university tomorrow, or you went into the workplace tomorrow, and you got an opportunity to talk about Jesus, and you said, friends, can I tell you? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21.19. How would that go? How, how would your friend react to that? They would not have a scooby what you were talking about. Would they? they would not have a clue what that meant. And you see, that is the same in Lystra, isn't it? If Paul had presented the gospel in the same way that he has done previously, as he has done to the Jews, if he had done that in Lystra, that city would have had no idea what he was talking about at all. So what I want us to do And this is where we just come in to close here. I just want us to think about and just notice one or two things that Paul does as he presents the gospel to an ungodly city. Because this is going to help you. And this is going to get help me when we try and speak to our friends. So think about this. What does he do? If he's changed his message, what does he do? Look, one. Note that he is not afraid here to begin where scripture begins. Begins where scripture begins. Look in verse 15. Look at this. Paul speaks to uh, this crowd in Lystra of a living God. Do you see that? Look what he says after that in verse 15. He speaks to them of a God who made the, the heavens and a God who made the earth and a God who made the sea. Now, do you see how controversial that is? Like, the people in front of him in this ungodly city were polytheistic. You know, they believed in a whole plethora, a whole host of different gods. Paul doesn't care less about that. Paul goes against the grain. He's not afraid to declare to them that he has faith in one true creator God. Even in a pagan city, he's going to go in there and say, I believe in a creator God. How How that contrasts with us. Aren't we petrified of talking about God as a creator in a secular city? Aren't we so ashamed of God that he is the creator God? We, we stay clear of that. We don't want anything to do that. Do you see, if we honor God, he will honor us. Friends, we should be proud. We should declare boldly that the God that we trust, the God that we have faith in, he is one true creator God. So Paul begins where scripture begins. Second thing, Paul is not afraid to speak to where people are at, even in a pagan context. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, what Paul does is quickly find a point of contact with his audience. Do you see what I mean? He speaks to what they know. 
He speaks to where they are, what they can relate to. That's how he presents the gospel. Like, he knows that these people can relate to rain. A lot of them are farmers, let's say, you know? They can relate to rain. They can relate to harvest. They can relate, as a pagan people can surely do, they can relate to the, to the pleasures of life. So Paul knows that. What does he do? He uses those things. He takes those things and he uses them to convince them of the existence of God. He uses them to present the gospel. Now, do you see what you can learn from that? See what I can learn from that? We've got to prayerfully consider where our friends are at. We've got to think about what's going on in, in our friends' lives and the people we work with. What are they worried about? What are they thinking about? Where are they at? We pray about these things and then we use those things as a point of entry in our presentation of grace. And then the last one, last thing, follow me in this. Think about the fact that even in the most ungodly of cities, Paul is not afraid to speak about repentance See, about halfway through, I mean, you could have missed it, but halfway through verse 15, there's a key word. It's a great word. It is the word turn. It's the word turn. I wonder, do you see what that means? It means that although he's adapting his message, and he is, you know, he's changing it. He's not speaking to Jews. He's adapting the message. That's why he's doing that. He's not leaving out the key elements of the gospel and the good news. The word turn. It's the same idea as the word repentance. Do you see what he's doing? He's speaking to a city that knows nothing of God and he's saying, turn from your idolatry and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Should we not learn from that? Friends, too often we want to teach people, we want to speak to people about grace, but we don't want to touch repentance. We don't want to say anything about sin. Well, we see here that Paul does we see that we must in an ungodly and secular city. And because of that, I want to end our sermon like this. This is how we close. This portion of scripture is about Paul challenging people to turn to Christ in an ungodly city. Now you are here this morning in London. You are here this morning in a thoroughly ungodly place. Have you done what Paul is encouraging these people to do? Have you turned from your wickedness to Jesus Christ? As you sit here, I don't know what brought you to church this morning. You might be wondering what it was that brought you to church this morning. As you sit here in London, do you believe in Jesus Christ to the saving of your soul? Do you believe See, I hope, I've got a hope. I hope you see the irony of this portion of scripture. Do you see it? These people worshipping Paul and Barnabas as gods, walking and appearing in the likeness of men, when all the time they are standing there preaching about a God who has done just that. A God who has sent his son to walk this earth. And to live a life of obedience that we couldn't live. To die a day that we could not die. When you consider what has been done for you, do you believe? Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Friends, what we see today, it's not just the power of God. We see that 
the essence of the gospel never, must never, ever change regardless of the audience. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray.